praise God. I'm going to take you to the book of Hebrews this morning. If you'll get your Bibles out, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Title of the message this morning is When the Mountain Trembles. When the Mountain Trembles. Verse 18, it says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burns with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of the words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. Verse 21. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Oh, man, I like that. Aren't you glad your name's written down in the book of life? Hallelujah. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Father God, as we open your word this morning, Lord, it's like a, it's a feast set before us, O oh God. And I pray, God, that you help us select the things that we need, Father, that's going to feed our spirit and make it strong and healthy, God, and useful for your kingdom, for your purpose, God. I know that you have a purpose and a plan, God, to do us good and not evil. Lord, you have a plan for every single person's life today, God. And I pray in Jesus' name that you help us find what that is, God. And help us to walk in it. Now, Lord, I pray that you open the eyes of our understanding again this morning, Lord, as we open your word. And God, you help us to see what it is trying to say and what you are trying to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, God, I pray for your anointing to come to help me speak, God, anything that I say. God, that is not of you, let it just die and fall to the ground, Lord. But let every word that proceeds from your mouth accomplish that which you please, God. May it prosper this morning in the thing whereunto you sent it, Lord. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Amen. Now, God has set his people free. I'm glad I'm one of those. Amen. Aren't you? Our name is registered in heaven. The Bible says it's written in the Lamb's book of life. I believe that by faith. I've never seen it written there. Have you? But I know that it's there. Also, he's recording many things in the books. One of these days, he's going to open those books and he's going to read the things that we've done. We should think about that because it said it'll be shouted from the housetops. Sometimes we do, think, th do things and we think nobody sees it. Nobody's ever going to know about it. Oh, yes, we will. <laughs> One day, everybody will know. That'll make you do things in your closet a little different when nobody's around. Amen? Now, we've been looking at the imagery of the life of the believer through the spiritual insight in the life of Moses and also in the children of Israel. God has redeemed them by the blood. He has sanctified them or set them apart from sin. He has led them by the Spirit, baptized them in water through the sea, baptized them in the Spirit, in the cloud as they followed the cloud. He has turned the bitter water into sweet. 
He has given them food to eat, the manna. He's given the spiritual meat to eat, the quail. He's smitten the rock so that the water runs out and it followed them and it fills them over and over and over again. All the time that they're wandering in the wilderness, all the way until they come and, in, and enter into the promised land. And last week we looked at the fight with the Amalekites in the Valley of Rephidim. And I showed you how that that is an example of the fight that we have with the demonic hordes and how the Amalekites are very much like Satan and the, and the demonic powers. Now, God has set the children of Israel free, but he didn't just set them free just so that they could go wandering around in the wilderness. God had a purpose for their life. The purpose was that they might serve him. He wanted them to serve him. <clears throat> God has freedom, and he's freed you and I from the bondage of sin that we might serve him. The same thing that we're seeing in the children of Israel, we see today. Now, <clears throat> as I was preparing this message, I was thinking over my lifetime as a child growing up in my dad's church and, and how many times, and at the risk of sounding judgmental, I don't mean to be, but I'm an I'm a observant person, I'm analytical, how many times I observed people who proclaimed the name of Jesus just wandering aimlessly doing nothing for the kingdom of God. Because my dad and his church, they kind of came from the old school and it was kind of a concept of we're going to hire the pastor. He's an employee, and we're going to see what kind of a job he does. And they sat back and basically did nothing, and the pastor worked himself to death. I have set out to teach the biblical truth that God gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. God has called us all into the ministry. Amen? And so I, I looked at the church and the history of the church and still see much of that today, not here, but the church as, as a whole wandering aimlessly without purpose. And I believe it's important for us to see that God does have a purpose for me. Everybody should understand he has a purpose for you individually. God has something he wants you to do. <clears throat> now we see that in, uh, Moses' address in Exodus chapter 3 when he first came to the bush, the very first thing that God told him said in verse 12, I will certainly be with you and, you, and it sh this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The whole reason he freed them from Egypt was to serve him. And so the very first thing he told Moses, when I brought you out of Egypt, you are going to serve me on this mountain. Now we saw in Hebrews 12 that he's talking about that same mountain. And he says to you and I, we didn't come to the mountain that can be touched, but we came to a different mountain, Mount Zion. And we're going to be talking about that some this morning. He said, you've come to a mountain that cannot be touched. Now the book of Hebrews makes some very direct references to this period of time that we're talking about. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is kind of centered around this experience. The children of Israel coming out of Egypt, going through the wilderness, because it's a picture of the Christian life and the things that we experience. And it's one reason I'm going so much depth to teach on it. It clarifies the imagery of God's plan 
as it is seen in the wilderness journey. So the plan that God has for you and I can also be seen in this same example that we're looking at. Now, we are very much like the children of Israel. And I need to clarify something because some people that hear me say that, they may go out and say something that I'm not saying. I said, we are like the children of Israel because I debunk in every way what is known as replacement theology. The church is not the spiritual Israel. You have the church and you have the nation of Israel. They're two entirely different things. And God deals with them entirely different. And we are not the spiritual Israel. The replacement theology is an inaccurate biblical teaching. And if you don't know what that is, I don't want to go into a great, great deal of depth. But for those of you who do know what it is, lest you confuse what I'm saying, we didn't replace Israel. That whole teaching is based on a flawed premise that there were 10 tribes to the north that were lost. There's no such thing as the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They were not lost. Who lost them? God didn't lose them. When the Bible talked about he's going to bring them from the north, the south, the east, and the west, he knew where they were. They're not lost. And he brought them back to Jerusalem. He didn't take them to Britain, and he didn't take them to Canada, and he didn't take them to America. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in the way they twist the scripture to get it to try to say that it infuriates uh, me because it just gets people twisted in all kinds of silly stuff that they study and spend their life, dedicate their life to. That's, it's just silly. The, the northern kingdom was the kingdom of Israel, and there were ten tribes there. They divided after Solomon was the king of the united kingdom of, Israel, of, of Jerusalem, of Israel, the children of Israel. They divided because when his son uh, Rehoboam became the king, the ten northern tribes, they separated because they didn't like him, all right? And they set up another king named Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam is to the north with the ten, ten tribes of Israel. The tribe of Judah and Benjamin is in the south in the tribe of Judah, all right, because uh, Rehoboam was of the tribe of Judah because he's, this is the lineage that Jesus would come from is the tribe of Judah. It's the kingly lineage. And so he is the king. Rehoboam is the king of the southern tribe. But then Jeroboam is afraid that they're going to start going back to Jerusalem, worshiping the true God. So he sets up idols, the calf that they had in Egypt. He builds a golden calf, and he sets two of them up on the high place, and he kicks the Levitical priest out. And so they go back to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now you got three kingdoms in the south. All right? You got three there, and for my math is right, that means there's nine left in the north. So if they were lost, only nine of them got lost to begin with because the Levites are now in the south. Are you with me? <clears throat> And then it says in, in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 13, And the priests and the Levites that were in all of Israel resorted to him out of their coast. For the Levites left their suburbs and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had cast them out from executing the priestly office under the Lord. And he uh, ordained his priests for the high places and for the devils and for the calves which he had made. Verse 16 is the key to this whole teaching. If you'll get this, you'll understand it, you'll check it off and move on, all right? After them, meaning the Levites, out of all the tribes of Israel, 
such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. So every one of the tribes had men, which just the, the tribe is not identified in the people group. It's identified in the blood of the male offspring. So every one of the 10 tribes are now back in the south. When, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians captured the southern kingdom of Judah, he captured all 12 tribes. When he sent them back to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the wall, all of them came back. They were never lost, all right? So I'm not teaching replacement theology when I say we are like the children of Israel. You have the nation of Israel and you have the church. But what we see in them and what they do is very much like what we do. And there's lessons that we can learn from that. And that said, for all of you Bible theologians out there, are we good? Amen. Good. I'm glad I got that straightened out. <laughs> We're like the children of Israel. We're strangers and pilgrims in the land. We seek a city and a coal. We seek a city whose builder and maker is God. Amen. I'm just, I don't own anything here. Brother, I'm just passing through. God let me reside at 1184 Payne's Mill Road. And it's, it's a nice place. I like it. Thinking about selling it, though. You know what? I am just, just downsize and just make it more simple. Because I don't, I don't own it anyway. I'm just passing through, praise God. I'm looking for a, a, a city and a kingdom whose builder and maker is God. We're, that's to what they were. We were once slaves to sin. We were redeemed by the blood, set apart from the leaven of sin, amen, led by the Spirit, baptized in the water, baptized in the Spirit, had our bitter water made sweet. We're just like them. And so as we see that, and God smote the rock, man, we get to drink, fighting the Amalekites. I was fighting him all week. Anybody been fighting the Amalekites this week? I hope you kicked his brains out, brother. I just kick him once for me. But now we're on the mountain. Only this mountain that we're on, it cannot be touched. Let's look at it again. Hebrews 12, 18 it says, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched. It's burning with fire and with the blackness and darkness and tempest. And verse 22 says, but you have come to Mount Zion. So what is God saying to the church by comparing these two mountains? God puts this stuff in here for a reason. He didn't decide, well, I think I'll just tell them about the mountain here in heaven and the one on earth. No, there's a reason for this. There's several things that we see in this. The first thing we see is the good news of God. He's comparing the old covenant to the new covenant. See, the old covenant was up on Mount Sinai. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he received the commandments of God. That's the old covenant. That was during the dispensation of the law. We're not under that dispensation anymore. We're under the dispensation of grace. Aren't you glad we're not under the law, brother? Because if we were, probably everybody in here would be dead. You'd be under a pile of rocks somewhere. Because he would have stoned you to death for something. You broke some law somewhere. I know. I broke all of them. In some way, I'm sure you have too, some of you. Maybe you're not as honoring and mean as I am. I don't know. But he's comparing the old covenant to the new. Another thing we see is he's comparing a mediator that could not make men perfect to one that can. Because they had a mediator. They sent Moses up as their mediator. How many of you, we know we got a mediator named Jesus Christ that sits on the right hand of the Father, making intercession. He is my mediator, and I am so glad he is. When God wants to go and fry me, Jesus says, no, he's under my blood, God. Do it for my sake. Give him mercy. Give him grace for my sake. 
And God says, for your sake, I'm going to let him go one more time. <laughs> Hebrews 12, 24 says, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, why did he throw Abel's name in here? Abel was the very first, I told you there's a hermeneutical, exegetical law that we'd use to study the Bible, and one of them is the law first mentioned. We see that a lot, and then God uses that. He's mentioning the very first person that made a blood covenant, blood sacrifice, which was Abel. If you remember, Cain brought the, the, what he harvested from the earth. He's trying to bring something worldly to God, and God rejected his offering. But Abel brought the blood of a lamb that he had slain, which was a type of Jesus Christ. And God was pleased with his offering. So Cain was jealous of his brother, rose up and killed his brother Abel. And then the Bible says that when, when God came to Cain, he says, where's your brother? Cain, where's your brother? He says, not my job to keep up with him. What, my, his brother, my brother's keeper? He, he, I mean, he smarted off at God. Was he stupid? Yeah. He's like, I don't know where he is. I'm not my brother's keeper. And he said, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And so he's making a comparison between the blood of Jesus and the blood not of that was spilled by Abel, but the blood that he brought in the sacrifice. He said, this is a better blood. Because Abel brought the blood of a lamb, which is a type of Jesus. Jesus brought the real deal. Amen. His own blood. There's all kind of parallels between them. Abel was cruelly murdered. So was Christ. There was an aggravated guilt by his brother. There was an aggravated guilt by the murder of Jesus, by his brethren and his countrymen. The blood of Abel called for vengeance. And it was executed. Cain was an outcast. The Jews said, let his blood be on us and on our children. How many of you know the Jews are still outcasts even to this day? A lot of comparisons there. Now he's, comparison, he's comparing two mountains. So we see the good news, but we also see a warning to the church. And so that's what I really want to focus on because I think this is the main reason that this passage exists. You see, God provides the way of salvation. The good news, God takes care of that. He's the mediator of the new covenant. He brought a new and better covenant. The Bible says that he swore by his own name because he couldn't swear by any other. So God's taking care of the good news. But the warning, that's my part. God's not going to take care of that. If he's warned me about something, then there's something I need to set up and take note of because this is something for me. Now, let's look at what he's saying here. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, we stopped at verse 24, but what I want to do is read on because what we're going to see is that the children of Israel refused the word of God. The last verse we read, to Jesus, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, that's on Mount Sinai, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. That's on Mount Zion. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. 
Now this, quote, yet once more, end quote, indicates removal of those things which are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, now you always want to focus in on that word because everything that he is describing is to bring you to a point, and he's bringing us there now. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for God is a consuming fire. Now, let's look at what he told them. What are they refusing? He said they refuse the word of God. If you'll turn to Exodus chapter 19 with me. Exodus 19, God has actually called Moses up onto the mountain. And he tells him in verse 5, Now therefore, if, everybody say if. That's the biggest little word in the English language right there, brother. The biggest word in the English language. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenants, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God says, Moses, come up here. If you'll keep my, if you'll hear my voice and you will keep my commandments, I'm going to make you more special than any other people on the earth. Talking about the nation of Israel. Now this is specific, specifically, I'm not speaking in tongues. I just can't get it out. Just bear with me here. <laughs> if I am, you interpret for me, Tony. How about that? He's specifically speaking of the nation of Israel here. But also we find, and I didn't pull the scripture out, but we find in 1 Peter, it says, you are, talking to the church, you are a holy nation, a royal people, a peculiar people. You've been separated unto your God. So it's also a type of the church. It's, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. If you're going to, if you'll do this, you'll be more special than anybody on the earth, a holy people, a priest, a nation of priests. <clears throat> verse 9, skip down to verse 9. Because he's, he's telling them in the first few verses, he says, you go down and talk to the people. But in verse 9, <clears throat> When, when Moses actually, he had gone down and he told them, this is what God said. And, the, and they responded saying, all that the Lord has said, we will do. All right. They didn't hear God say that. They heard Moses say, God told me to tell you thus and so. And they said, okay, that, we'll do all that. Then verse 9, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, I come to you in the thick cloud and the people may hear when I speak with you. And believe forever. So this is different. Now God is going to come and he's going to talk to Moses and they're going to hear what God is saying to Moses. They're not going to get it secondhand. This is a picture of the New Testament church. You know why? God wants to talk to you. You don't need to go into a confession booth somewhere and have a priest intercede for you. Are you hearing me, church? He is a personal savior. He walks with you and talks with you. You can hear what he says. 
You don't have to hear it from a mediator. God wants to talk to you. He wants you to hear him. So he said, they're going to hear me speak to you. Where am I? CVH, thank you, man. I thought I made a wrong turn. Wound up down at another church there somewhere. Who is that? That had to be, that had to, oh, I thought that was Nay-Nay. That, that sounded like a Nay-Nay move. <laughs> She's always talking back and forth with me. You would never say something like that. <laughs> Somebody said, repent. Hey, we're talking about God just telling us to obey his word here now. Y'all just. He said, and the Lord said to Moses, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and believe forever. So Moses told the words of the, of the people to the Lord. Now, Moses goes back up and says, God, they said they're going to do everything you told them to do. All right. And in verse 10. And God's still talking to Moses. I'm going to come down so they can hear me. In verse 10, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. Now, I wanted to build a whole sermon on that, but that's an entire sermon by itself. I'm going to move on past that. Verse 11, And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. People can't say, well, I didn't know. Church, we can't say, well, I didn't know. God says, you're going to see me and you're going to hear me. Every person there is going to see me and they're going to hear me. And then we go into chapter 20. And most of you know Exodus chapter 20 is where God gives the Ten Commandments. The first 17 verses of Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not have any other God before me. You'll not make any graven image to bow down and worship. And he goes right down the list. And what we fail to understand sometimes is the people heard that themselves. They're not getting it secondhand from Moses. They're listening to that. They're hearing that for themselves. Now, in verse 18 of Exodus chapter 20, it says, And all the people saw the thundering and the lightning and the noise of the trumpet on the, in the mountain. And this is what we was reading about in Hebrews, remember? He said, You didn't come to the mountain. It's got all this noise and the trumpets and all this sound and the fire and the smoke. You've come to a different mountain. But this is the mountain they're describing. And the people saw all of this. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, fear not for God is come to prove you and that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. Now here's God. He's like, God, bring all the people to me. Bring them to me, and I'm going to come down, and you and I, we're going to have a meeting, and I'm going to tell you what I expect of them, and they're going to see me, and they're going to hear me. 
Not, they didn't see his face. They didn't see his body. It's a kind of different manifestation. But what they're seeing is they're seeing this mountain. and It is completely engulfed with this dark, dark cloud. Smoke is ascending from it like a furnace. There's lightning and thundering, and the mountain is quaking. The people's like, whoa, baby, I'm, got, I'm standing over here. And they, they were, for fear, they drew back. But Moses didn't. Moses drew near. It says that Moses drew near to God and they drew back from God. They said, we don't want to talk to him. You go talk to him. Now, what has changed? Moses came down and says, God said, if you'll hear my voice, you'll obey my command. You'll be a special people. Okay, Moses, we'll do that. But now they're seeing God and they hear him say, you can't commit adultery. You can't steal. You can't lie. You can't bear false witness against your neighbor. You don't covet the things that he has. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute. We're going to stand over here, Moses. You go talk to God. It wasn't entirely the fear of God. Is They didn't like what he had to say. They didn't like what he had to say. And then, then you read the next 12 chapters. Moses goes back up on the mountains, and for 40 days, God, he tells him how to build the tabernacle. He tells him how I want the ark built. He tells him how to make the table of showbread, how to build the, the altar of sacrifice, the brazen laver, and all the things that we see inside of the tabernacle. And he gives him all those instructions for the next 12 chapters. And then when you get to chapter 32, God tells him, says, you need to get back down to the camp. Because what they have done is they said, we don't know what's happened to Moses. We don't know what's become of this man. Aaron, make us a God that we can worship him. What they're saying is we don't like that God on the mountain. He's scary. He's got rules we don't like. We're going to make another God. And so they gathered all the gold and all the silver and he creates this golden calf. Now there's thunder and lightning on this mountain, which is scary to them. How many of you ever been in a thunderstorm? All right. And it really, 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 really was scary. I was working one time in the shop out behind my house there. And there was this huge tree about 50 yards behind my shop, big oak tree. And I had built a tree house in it for my boys. All right, and it had a tin roof on it. It's about eight feet off the ground, something like that. And I'm working along, and a bolt of lightning hit that tree 50 yards behind me. It came, I mean, it blasted the bark off of this tree. It came down, hit the tin roof. It ran down the nails in a two-by-four where I'd nailed the T-111 siding to that two-by-four. And when you looked inside of it, it was a pile of toothpicks. It exploded that two-by-four. When he hit those nails. And then I had a bottle cart that I'd use kind of to carry some heavy stuff around sitting under. And he hit that and ran into the ground. But I'm standing there and working. All of a sudden, boom! I kind of imagine what they're seeing. And it just kept going and going. And remember the quake of what year was that in Louisa? I was outside when that happened. It literally picked me up. I mean, the ground, I mean, the ground raised up. And I looked at my basketball goals doing this, and the trees are doing this, and leaves are falling, and there's this rumbling. I'm like, whoa, this is so cool, man. <laughs> Jeannie comes out, she's like, hush. I hated to tell her to stop praying. She's praying in the spirit. She was scared. She, she said she didn't walk out. She 
bounced out the door, you know, because the house, I wasn't in the house, so it probably was pretty scary, you know. But I'm out there, I'm like, shh, 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 hush, I want to hear this, you know. And it's, it was incredible, you know. So I, I can imagine in a small way what they must have heard and seen. But when God came down, they refused what he had to say, even though they said, whatever he tells us, we'll do. I think the warning for us today is don't make the same mistake that the Jews made when they refused to hear God. Because that's what he's telling them. They refused to hear God. Don't do what they did. They drew back from God. The Bible says that God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants a personal relationship with you. The book of John said God seeks those. When he, the woman at the well, remember, they're sitting around, and he said God seeks those that will worship him in spirit and truth. He's looking for you. God's looking for you. He wants you to worship him in spirit and truth. He told the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, he said, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open up, I will come in and sup with him and him with me. Can't you, can't you imagine one morning you get up and hear somebody on the door of your house, you go up and it's God. You've opened the door and he's like, I just thought I'd come by for a cup of coffee. All right, God, come on in. Man, wow. You pour him a cup of coffee and he sits there and he just talk. I mean, you don't think of God like that, but that's what he's saying. I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door, I'll come in and have a cup of coffee with you. I don't know if he drinks coffee or not, but give me a little room here, right? <laughs> Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He wants a relationship with you. He wants a personal, intimate relationship with you. I was talking to a guy, and he told me a story about Michael Jordan. This guy was a huge Michael Jordan fan, knew all the stats on him. He knew that he, when he was in high school, they rejected him from the team because he wasn't a good basketball player. <laughs> I don't know who that coach was, but I bet he got fired, brother. <laughs> you know, and so this guy, he loved him. He had, had our posters of him. He knew everything about him. And one day, he went to his house. He knocked on the door, and Michael came to the door and said, Hey, Michael, it's Bernie. Michael looked at him and slammed the door and said, you're crazy, man. Get away from me. Something's wrong with you. What was the problem? Michael didn't know him. He didn't know him. The Bible says in, in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 31, many will say to me in that day, I prophesied in your name, cast out devils in your name. I did all kind of work for you, Jesus. I knew everything about you. Read all your material, got your posters. Man, I was telling Paul, I knew all your stats. Knew everything about you. Come knocking on the door of heaven, and Jesus opens up and says, Hey, Jesus, it's Bernie. He's like, Who? Who? Depart from me, you work of iniquity. I don't know you. See, he doesn't just want people to study and know about him, he wants a relationship with you. It's not about religion. There's a lot of religious people. It's about relationship. He wants a relationship with you. The second thing is they chose a mediator. It's easy to have a mediator because it's safer to grumble about that man than it is about God. 
If something goes wrong, I can't, I can't grumble about God. He doesn't do anything wrong. But I can blame the mediator. Right? And if he tries to bring correction, I can say, well, who do you think you are? You're not God. Who do you think you are, Moses? Come down here and correct me. You're not God. And Moses is like, I don't want to be in the place of God. You're supposed to be going and getting it for yourself. I shouldn't be having to tell you. You're supposed to be doing this yourself. See, it's easy to make a mediator because it's easy for us to argue with him. The flaws of our human mediator keeps us at a safe distance from God because we feel justified. Well, I walked away from God because that mediator, he hurt me so bad. Ever seen anybody that walked away from God, backslidden on God? Well, why? Then people down at that church, that pastor, he's so mean. He hurt me so bad. Well, what happened? It's not about you and your pastor and God or you and your Sunday school teacher and God or you or anybody and God. It's about you and God. He doesn't want a buffer between you, a mediator between you. But they said, we're, we don't, God said, bring them to me. Bring them to me. They said, no, we don't, we don't want to go to him. You go. You go. They tried one last strategy to ignore God, even though they had heard him themselves. Because you got to remember, he said, I'm going to come down and talk to you. They're going to see me. They're going to hear me. He came down and said, thou shalt not have another God before you. I am a jealous God visiting the sins and the iniquities of the children to the third and fourth generation. You shall not make a graven engine to bow down and worship it. They heard that themselves. But yet they called Aaron and said, make us a God. And so they made a God that suited themselves. They wanted to create their own version of what they thought God was like. A God that will accept their sin. This is a message to the New Testament church. Are you hearing me? An os a consuming fire, a God that's, the mountain's trembling and all of that. No, we don't like that God. I want a God that accepts my sin. Now, just as a side note, they didn't want an alternative God. They weren't looking for another God. They believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. They believed in that. I mean, they've seen what he's done. They weren't looking for an alternative God. In their mind, this was God. Because when they held it up, they said, Behold, Elohim, who brought us out of Egypt. They believed and thought they're serving the right God. They didn't think, well, this is, that's the right God up there, and this is another God. No, they thought that was God. They were deceived into thinking that everything that they were doing that was pleasing God was the right thing. And therein is the warning to the New Testament church. We must be careful that we don't create a God that has the image that we think he ought to be. And all the things that we do is pleasing him when the things that we're doing is not the things that he has, we've heard him say and that he has commanded us. He said, if you will hear my voice and obey my command. And I fear that the New Testament church many times has created a God to suit themselves. 
It's not a cheap God. It, it came in a great sacrifice. It took all of their gold and silver to make this thing. Well, I give. Well, I tithe. I work hard. Since they rose up early in the morning, I show up for everything. I'm busy in church. A lot of times people, are, they're worshiping a God that they've created and they don't even realize, oh, no, I'm worshiping the right God. That's what they thought. They drew near to it because it was familiar to them. They had seen this thing for 400 years in Egypt. It was familiar to them. So we're going to make a God that looks familiar. It looks just like the world. Thinks like the world, acts like the world. That God up there on that mountain, he's scary. He's different. He doesn't act like the world. There's something different about him. And so they get out and they sing and they dance and they drink and they start having sex with anybody and everybody. The Bible says they were naked. They ripped off their clothes. Boy, I could preach on that in churches today. Sometimes the, the, the people that are coming into church, they need to, they need to learn some modesty. Come on. I better not go too far with that. So she got on that holy dress. Lo and behold. Mm -hmm. They were comfortable with it. He was not fearful like the God on the mountain. No, our God, he's not all in clouds and thunder and lightning and all them loud noise and trumpet and the earthquaking. No, we control what he says and does. No, our God is nice and peaceful. We're going to tell him what to do. We're going to get us a bulletin and have an order of service. The Holy Spirit comes up in here. We're going to tell him what to do. Holy Spirit not going to have his way. No, we got an order of service, and you better not deviate from it, Holy Spirit. You ever been to one of those churches? I have. Now, I'm not here to throw stones, but I'm telling you, God wrote this for a reason. I don't pray when we open our service, Holy Spirit, come into this place. Have your way for no reason. That's what we ought to be praying. We don't want to put God in a box and say, you've got to do it this way and no other way. And all the ritual and ceremony and form, Jesus said, you have made the word of God of no effect with your tradition. The Holy Spirit needs to have liberty to operate. And sometimes what he does is scary. It's weird. It's not what we're used to. We want to dictate what he does. No, we're going to make a God to suit herself. Our God is not judgmental. You ever heard that one? He's never going to do anything weird. He's never going to be all loud and noisy. All that loud, noisy stuff. No, God will never do that. Be still and know that I am God. I've been in churches. Brother, you could hear a pin drop and it would echo throughout the building. I was in a church one time, and the lady was singing a song, and I just said, praise the Lord. Man, the woman in front of me, it looked like somebody hit her in the back of the head. She jumped like that and turned around real slow and looked at me because I said something in church. I'm serious. Because I, I just, the woman was singing a song, a beautiful song, and she got some part, and I, I very quietly, I wasn't being obnoxious. I just said, glory to God. I probably didn't say it any louder than that. Looked at me. 
I got in the flesh. I, I didn't say anything, but I wanted to get right in here and say, glory to God. <laughs> I knew I had some flesh that needed to die about that time. Like, what are you looking at, woman? You better turn back around there. You. Our God would never do that. He'll never correct you. No, the God we made, he, he just said, man, we, love, we hug all over him. We shine his golden, beautiful horns, man. We show him off. He would never correct you, stone you to death, shoot you with an arrow. No, and our God doesn't care how much sin's in the camp. Huh? Our God we created, he doesn't, he doesn't care how much sin's in the camp. We can go to church every Sunday and live like hell all week, and he don't care. We can drink and party and sex and all that, and we can dance around because of God we created. He doesn't care about all that stuff. He understands our sin. Our God understands our sin. Doesn't matter how habitual it is. Doesn't matter how deliberate it is. And if it's too hard to obey his commandments, which we have heard for ourselves, don't worry about that because God loves sinners. Sound familiar? God loves sinners. We'll just take out a big old jar of grace and we'll just spread it all over our sin. Everything will be all right. You say, yeah, but didn't it say something about grace? Hebrews chapter 12, we read it. Verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. But you gotta you got to read what he's saying. Since we have received a kingdom. Is that what he said? No, since we are receiving a kingdom. Church, it is an ongoing process we can, which cannot be shaken. Let us take grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For God is a consuming fire. If he didn't care about all that, it wouldn't matter. But church, it does matter. And he's saying, look, church, you didn't come to a mountain which can be touched. That's trembling and there's thunder and there's lightning. And if something dared touch it, you stone it to death. You don't even touch it with your hands. You kill it with rocks or you shoot it with an arrow. No, that's not the mountain you came to. No, I brought you to a better mountain, Mount Zion. And the mediator, this Jesus Christ, it's not a man. His blood is the best blood because it redeems the sins of men. Nevertheless, I'm going to warn you about something. Don't do what they did. You still have to hear my voice. You still have to obey my command. That didn't go away under the new covenant. And I fear that people have made themselves a golden calf and created a God that suits themselves. And he doesn't look at all like the God of the Bible. He doesn't look like the God on the mountain, Zion or Sinai. How does God appear to you? See, that's the question we need to take away from here this morning. How does my God appear to me? Is he one of my own making? Do we find our version of God on the mountain? 
because regardless of which mountain you're looking at and the, the resemblance of God on that mountain, here's the litmus test that they both have. Do you have reverent fear for your version of God? Because they were supposed to have reverence. In fact, if you read that, he said he put a boundary so that they would not even touch the mountain. Don't come near it to touch it because if you touch it, you must be stoned to death or shot with an arrow. In other words, you respect the presence of God. You have reverence and awe for his presence. But he says the same thing about the God on Mount Zion, the New Testament, the church. We are to serve him. He said, therefore, you have been given grace that you may serve him with reverent fear. That's the litmus test. Do we have a reverent fear for our version of God? If we do not, it's almost certain that we have created an idol. If we don't have a reverent fear for God. Now, some people, I'm going to close with this. Some people say, yeah, but the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Because I thought about this. If I presented this as an argument, some people say, way you're, you're twisting the New Testament, Pastor. Because 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, herein is the love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this earth, in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear hath torment. And he that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. So, no, in the New Testament, we have perfect love, and that casts out fear. We're not supposed to fear God. But read what it's saying. Because perfect love also has a perfect obedience to God. If you love God, listen, if you really love him, he said, if you love me, you will do the things that I say. So if we claim we have perfect love, then okay. But perfect love has perfect obedience. It also longs to be near him. If you love somebody, if you love, do you remember when you were dating your girlfriend or your boyfriend? All you could think about is you wanted to be where they were. Am I right? I hope you married. I mean, you still feel that way. <laughs> if you don't, maybe you need to start courting again. <laughs> if you love somebody, you want to be near them. So if you have perfect love, you want to be near him. You don't draw back away from him. And perfect love doesn't choose a human mediator to go between you and the one you love. You want to be in his presence personally. So you have to read what he's saying. Verse 17, read, the, read what he is saying. Herein is the love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. How many of you would like to go to the judgment throne and be bold standing there? Apparently, it's possible. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. That's how your love is made perfect. As he is, so are we. Anyone that is absolutely in love with God does not want to do anything against any of his wishes and is absolutely committed not to sin. If you, he said, if you, 
hear my voice and obey my commands. If we really are in love with God, I'm committed. I'm going to do everything in my power not to sin. Now, how many of you know we still sin? But I don't go out and deliberately sin, and I don't do it as a habit. Sometimes I sin, like when I want to scream in that woman's ear, that probably wouldn't have been a sin. Sometimes your flesh, you get to a moment of weakness. Sometimes you're doing a sin you don't even know is a sin. The Bible says to him that knoweth to do good and do it not, to him it's a sin. Sometimes some people are sinning, but they don't even know it's a sin. God will convict them of that eventually. Now, if you're not at that level of perfection yet, we should learn something about the fear of God. The Bible says that we are receiving the kingdom. In other words, we're growing. Moses himself, the very first time he saw God was at the burning bush. You know what he did? He hid his face. The Bible says he hid his face. But after all the plagues, after the crossing of the Red Sea, after he saw the bitter water change, after the manna came down from heaven and the quail, he smote the rock. After he saw God defeat the Amalekites and he comes to the mountain, he's not hiding his face anymore. Church, if you've walked with God for a while, you should get to a point where you want to be in his presence. But you're not drawing back afraid of him. You still have a reverence and a, and a respect for him, but you're not afraid of him anymore. You're not hiding from him. The Bible says that Adam and Eve went out and hid themselves. Sin makes you hide from God. If you're deliberately and habitually sinned, sure. When that, see, the thing is, when the, when the mountain thundered and, and the lightning and it's quaking and all that, that, that wasn't what repelled them. But when God came down and says, you can't do this and you can't do that and you're going to do this and you're going to do that, they're like, whoa, we're going to do an Adam and Eve move here. We want to get away from you. If we've been walking with God, we should draw near to him. Moses came near to God. Finally, to the point that later on, he said, God, I want you to show me your glory. I want to see more of you. And it finally got to the point in Exodus 33, verse 20, that God told him, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Because he wanted to see God. He was so enamored with God. Moses was so enamored with God that his face began to glow. So much so they had to put a veil over his face because it was so bright they couldn't look at Moses' face. Wouldn't it be something that you had, you spent so much time in the presence of God and you had such a hunger for his presence that you begin to manifest his glory? I think some of you do. I was sharing with the prayer team, uh, I've been working with Richard. Richard's been the, the, the Latino boy that's sitting here in the front. They're out of town this week. They've gone with his mom, Terry. They're out in Kansas. He's been coming out working with me. That's a workingest guy you've ever seen, man, and he is good, too. That boy can turn out some work. But he can't wait to get here. We're not paying him anything. He can't wait to get here. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, is it the work? But I don't believe it is. I believe he wants to be in the presence of a man of God. He wants to be around it. He's drawn to that. And I'm not patting myself, but I'm saying when you spend time with God, there's something about you. The glory of God is on you. People want to be with you. They want to be around you. If you ever wanted to be around somebody who just had Jesus all over them, you just wanted to be in their presence. It was just something about them. Well, that's what we see in Moses. And I believe 
that that's what God is trying to say to us. Do we reflect his glory? Do we please him? And here's how you can do it if you don't. Serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's what he said. I've given you my grace so that you will serve me with reverence and godly fear. Amen. How many of you like to be there? Amen. Praise God. Well, that felt good. I don't know if you enjoyed it out there, but I sure had a good time up here. Praise God. Let me pray, and then we're going, we got some stuff we need to take care of, and we're going, we're going to let you get out of here. Father God, we want to be in your presence, Lord, not just when we assemble here, God. Lord, we know that you're, you're always present, God. I mean, you're, you're omnipresent. You're everywhere, all the time, all of you. But God, would, and I know you, I understand you're talking about your manifested presence, Lord. God, we want to be in your manifested presence. God, not just when we're here in the, in the assembly, but Lord, tonight when we lay down and go to sleep, God, when my wife has said something to irritate me, God, when, when something has gone wrong, Lord, when, when I, I see something that the government's doing that just, that just irritates me and every aspect of life, God, when we show up on the job and the boss gives us a job to do that it doesn't seem fair or... God, when we're driving down the road and somebody cuts us off in traffic and all the little things, Lord, that happens that, that shows us there's still some flesh that needs to die and still things that need working, God, that we want to be in your presence then. So, God, we're asking you today to give us your grace, Lord, so that we can serve you acceptably. May the things that we do be acceptable to you, God. In reverent fear, God, I pray that you take this word now, Lord. Help us to let it soak in, God, to our spirit. And realize, God, we don't want to be guilty of creating a God to suit ourselves. Show us your truth. Show us your way, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you are blessed and encouraged by it. Central Virginia Assembly of God is located on 5052 Cross County Road, Mineral, Virginia, 23117. If you would like more information about the church, visit us at centralvaag.org or call 804-514-2413. We would love to hear from you. God bless.